This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Hi, I'm Ilani Wilson. I'm a bookseller at Barnes & Noble. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with bookseller by day, author by night, Francesca May. Under the name Fran Doricott, she has written psychological thrillers and crime novels, After the Eclipse, The Final Child, and The Lighthouse, which also just came out in February of this year. And on March 29th, her highly anticipated and dazzling gothic fantasy debut under the name Francesca May, Wild and Wicked Things, will hit the shelves. Francesca, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I love this. This is great. <laughs> so what made you decide to debut this book under a new pen name? And does it feel the same as the first time you debuted a novel? To be honest with you, I wanted to separate my two writing careers, but only marginally. So I think that people who like my crime books may well like my fantasy and vice versa. But to be honest, it was more about splitting them up and giving them a bit more space to breathe. Debuting this time around has been pretty spectacular. I love writing crime, but fantasy is where my heart is. I'm just so excited to get to debut with a book that feels very much like the book of my heart. It's a book that I wrote as a passion project and to have other people connect with that and be excited about it as a debut is spectacular, to be honest. I love that. Can you tell us a little bit about what Wild and Wicked Things is about? Wild and Wicked Things tells the story of Annie Mason, who comes to Crow Island, which is well known in the world for its rather lax regard for the rules of magic after the death of her father. She was estranged from her father and it was his final request that she come to the island to sort through his belongings. And when she gets there, she realizes that her childhood friend B is on the island and has become connected with a rather strange, enigmatic neighbor of Annie's who is rumored to be a witch. So Annie gets embroiled very quickly in the relationship between be her best friend and Emmeline finds herself very drawn to Emmeline and, and her witchy ways. <laughs> and a lot of the ways that this book is described are, you know, like Great Gatsby, but add witches or <laughs> Great Gatsby meets practical magic. What is it about witch books and gothic fantasy novels that attracts you to them? Well, I think maybe it's the same thing um, with me versus everybody else, to be honest, in that I think we really like reading books about dangerous people and people who maybe live on sort of the outsides or the outskirts of society. And I think that witchcraft and witches have traditionally really demonstrated that, you know, they are generally outcasts. They're judged quite harshly by the rest of society. And I think that there's something really interesting for us as readers to read about people who are actually just like us in a lot of ways they have the same joys the same sorrows and I think seeing that through like a magical lens particularly just gives you that distance to go oh hang on a minute that's a bit like me actually so yeah (laughs) yeah definitely agree so you know with The Great Gatsby being one of the books that just never seems to get old. And so many authors are often inspired by it and always finding new ways to tell this story. What is it about The Great Gatsby that kind of led you to this concept and this play on the classic? So honestly, Gatsby is one of my favorite books anyway. And I always knew that if I was going to ever try and write a book that would riff off another book, then it would be Gatsby. Because I think the themes particularly that interest me are the themes of reinvention and this idea of class and privilege. And I I think that that is a timeless 
theme in itself. You know, we're still dealing with class issues today. We still deal with the same ideas of privilege, although it does manifest differently sometimes. But I think the other thing that it always sparkles about Gatsby is the absolutely ridiculous amount of wealth that mm. characters throw around. And I think that most people are sort of we're drawn to shiny things, particularly shiny things that hide something darker underneath. And I think Gatsby does definitely do that. And I think one of the things that's kind of so enchanting about your story is the connection to Gatsby. And it's so like you've got these lavish parties and this fun and this excitement, but it's such a <laughs> just dark yeah absolutely it's so gritty isn't it like at its yeah. heart it's yeah. it's got a real black center and I think this is the thing that um that I really wanted to play on in Welcome Wicked Things is that the characters are awful people generally but they're not all villains they're not all heroes I think a lot of people are very morally gray and a lot of people won't admit to their failings I do think it appeals in that way because most people have like a secret dark heart that they would not admit to having Mm -hmm. and you know mentioning your characters there's so much crossover with the characters that you highlight in your story and the characters in The Great Gatsby where it's like you know Annie Mason and Nick Carraway are kind of that same character and you know Emmeline and Jay Gatsby and the characters are such strong personalities. We kind of focus on Emmeline and Annie kind of at the forefront, but there's so many great characters that you've developed with Nathan and Isabel and, you you know, (laughs) the backstory of Scylla. And how did you get to the creation of these characters and even the names for some of the characters? (laughs) (laughs) I love their names. Naming characters is one of my favorite things. I started with Gatsby as my starting point. I knew I wanted to write my take on Gatsby. So I I would say it's not so much a retelling as a reimagining. Mm -hmm. Because I knew that in order for me to tell Gatsby, it would be very, very different. There's no way I can compare myself to Fitzgerald. I'm not even going to try. But my take on Gatsby is very different anyway. Because for starters, I am a woman. I am myself sapphic. So I was like, right, okay, I want to write a sapphic Gatsby. You know, I'm, I'm into my witchy stuff anyway. So it seemed like a perfect meld. But I knew that I wanted to start with the basis of Gatsby and then let it evolve from there. So it very much started with the Gatsby character archetypes. So mm-hmm. I, like, like you say, I, you know, I knew I wanted a Gatsby character and I knew I wanted a Nick Carraway character. And frankly, I think there's a lot of homoerotic subtext in Gatsby anyway. So <laughs> I was building on that. But in terms of their wider sort of web of characters, I think that Gatsby's quite isolated as a book. It doesn't have that many supporting cast, except for the people that the parties and, the, and you know, you've got kind of the offshoot from Tom and Myrtle in New York. And I wanted to, I think, populate my book ever so slightly more than that because Gatsby is a very lonely character and I think if you were to see parts of the book from his point of view you might not view him so sympathetically and I wanted my my Gatsby my Emmeline to be a little bit more sympathetic and so I wanted to give her a family albeit a a very dysfunctional very unusual one and one of my favorite themes in books with queer characters is the found family trope. Mm-hmm. So that is where Emmeline's adopted siblings, Nathan and Isabel came from. And Emmeline's name is one of my favorite points. I won't go into it too much because it is explored in the book itself, but mm-hmm. Emmeline was not always known by the name she is known now. And I wanted to twist the idea of the Gatsby reinventing himself trope to more about what would happen if the Gatsby character is reinvented 
sort of against their will. Mm. So the I think we we can say you know it is biblical. It's mm-hmm. biblical for, for for a lot of reasons, and I think that her transformation is a key part of her character development, even before you meet Emily. There's so many things about these characters, and it's really hard to be a hundred percent behind them. <laughs> um, <laughs> me personally, I feel like there's one character that I'm supposed to kind of not like more than the others, but I feel like for me, it was Annie. <laughs> I'm just like yeah. you know, you just bother me. <laughs> You know, you know, I think there is something in that though. Annie thinks that she is very righteous and she thinks that she is a good person. Mm-hmm. And I think that where she and Emmeline differ is Emmeline will fully admit that she is not a good person. And that in some way makes her far more honest. And mm-hmm. I think it makes her more likable than Annie. But you know, who we got to be, I don't think Nick is a particularly likable character either. Right. True. <laughs> So, you know, this concept of all of these, you know, wicked things that these people are doing and just wicked people in general, do you feel like it's possible to be wicked and good at the same time? Oh, absolutely. When I first drafted this book, I didn't realize how much I was delving into the idea of morality. And it was only in subsequent edits that I went back and realized, you know, how complex it becomes. Because the whole point about this book, from Annie's point of view, particularly, and and Emmeline's too, is how can you be a good person if you've done bad things? And Mm -hmm. how can you say that you're a bad person if you didn't mean to do bad things? How much of it is intentional? How much of it is accidental? And I think that that's where the gray area really comes in, because Annie finds herself on a very slippery slope. And it's quite an extreme transformation in some ways. She wants to be brave. She wants to transform herself Mm -hmm. into an image that is more like Emmeline's. And in doing so, she does make some very, very bad decisions. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't think she at any point, I think she could look back at the end and say, oh, I made some bad decisions. But during the meat of it, during that moment, of fear or panic or whatever it is, there's always a split second where you make a decision and then you kind of have to roll with it. And I think mm-hmm. that a lot of people find themselves in situations like that on a regular basis, barring actual genuine maliciousness. I don't know that you could necessarily say, oh, I'm a bad person because I made this terrible mistake that ended up with something bad happening down the line if actually the mistake itself is very small. Right. I think that's the tricky part. People can say multitudes. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> I'm sure you're familiar with the quote from Toni Morrison, you know, like if there's a book out there that you want to read, but it hasn't been written yet, then you must write it. And when I think of you as a writer and your catalog and this book, I feel like that definitely probably had to resonate with you. (laughs) And I'm really curious, just kind of like with it being kind of like a sapphic witchy story and not necessarily a story that you've heard before. It's a reimagining, but it's a new story. What were your influences, if any, in writing the story? And like, how did you get here? How did I get here? (laughs) That's a very good question. Um, You know, what's interesting about this book is I sat down to write this as a fun project. And I emphatically told myself at no point would I ever attempt to get this book published. I needed something that would be really self-fulfilling for me I wanted to write the kind of book that I had always wanted to read and mm-hmm. I have always really liked books with very lyrical prose I'd never really been brave enough to try it and I think that you have to be very careful in crime fiction about using lyrical prose depending on the market that you're aiming for 
And so I knew that and I knew the style that I wanted to try wouldn't really work for my crime books. But it's something that I really self-indulgently wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I sat down to write the book because, like you say, I hadn't really read a witch book in a while that had resonated with me as strongly as I wanted it to. The witchy books were only just starting to come back really into fashion. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them were sort of young adult quite contemporary set they were more kind of Sabrina the Teenage Witch which don't get me wrong I absolutely love I love those books but I am a big fan of really dark gothic books like Rebecca I wanted to really kind of tap into those influences when I was working on it and then while I was drafting the book one of my bookseller colleagues passed away and I think it became a way to critically examine my own grief through the medium of storytelling which is something I've always done but it just became this very precious book to me and I've always been a big fan of writing fantasy and reading fantasy Mm -hmm. so it just seemed like a natural thing even though I said I wouldn't do it (laughs) (laughs) after I finished it I was like no I believe in this book too much I have to do something with it in a lot of queer stories there are those you know the found family home situation and you know where where they're not necessarily their blood family, but they have developed these close relationships with people over time. And I feel like the majority of your characters are kind of, they're in that, you know, the LGBTQI community. And there's something like about heterosexual relationships where we just don't have to come out. We just, we just are. And I feel like your characters don't have to come out. Annie comes into her own in her coming of age story. And she has that aha moment where she kind of like, you know, like, this is what I was missing, but there's no coming out moment. And I'm wondering why you didn't feel the need to kind of play into that. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's it's a really good question because I think a lot of coming of age stories that deal with queer characters and have queer characters at their center, they do focus on the element of coming out and Mm -hmm. discovering your identity. And Growing up, I always wanted to see myself in other books, but I didn't want those books to be limited purely to that moment of the coming out. Then what do you do when you're past that? Or what do you do if you're not ready to come out, but you want to just experience seeing people enjoy these relationships? And for me, it was very much when I started writing, even before writing my fantasy, I do the same thing with my crime. I very much like to depict characters who just so happen to be gay. It mm-hmm. is part of their identity, but it is not their only defining factor. Right. And that was really important to me, even though I knew I wanted to write essentially a coming of age story mm-hmm. for Annie. I didn't want it to focus only on that one element of her sexuality. I wanted that to be part of something much larger. Hopefully I yeah, managed to achieve that. Definitely. No, I think that's great. With the different types of witchy stories, and there's so many specific mentions, you know, there's the conjure cards, there's the Kazam. So like, what was kind of your research that went into, and honestly, it might not have been research, it might be stuff that you know, (laughs) but what what kind of went into bringing all of these elements to life in a way that these are real witches? (laughs) It's a combination of everything. It's a combination of passions I've had since I was a teenager. You know, I grew up on the steadiest diet of Charmed that anybody possibly could. I was obsessed with that TV show growing up. And because of that, I read a lot of books as a teenager that were in that kind of vein. You know, I read the Wicker or Sweet books by Mm -hmm. Kate Tiernan and things like that. And I think that formed a very core part of my personality and who I am. Between years, I have had much less 
interest in the occult and kind of witchiness it's never really gone away I have multiple sets of tarot cards and I do use them I often use them for plotting actually (laughs) (laughs) and I have books on herbal medicine and remedies and I really like to connect with my customers in the mind body spirit section and kind Mm. of chat with them about the things that they're interested in so it's a very much a personal interest of mine but I also knew that to create a magic system based on kind of paganism, I would need to be really careful because I don't want to villainize anything to do with that because the magic that exists in my book is very dark and it's Mm -hmm. not even remotely like real Wicca or or pagan magic. I knew I needed something else. And so this is where the prohibition on the magic comes in and it's where the herbal remedies just take that step one step further, as it were, in the way that Emmeline particularly uses her blood to create more potent magic. Okay. So it's kind of just like natural. You you know enough about it to kind of go from there, but then the deeper. Yeah, re- yeah definitely. Absolutely. I wanted to add that undercurrent of kind of it's genuine fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes it that, that one step further. But I mean, don't get me wrong. I had to do a lot of research about different herbs and things because my knowledge is <laughs> right. not complete by any means. With this story taking place post-World War One, and, you know, the, during the magical prohibition and going back to the Kazam and people knowing that there is witchcraft happening on Crow Island and they're going into these parties and kind of knowing what they're getting themselves into. Can you explain a little about what Kazam does? <laughs> so Kazam is essentially an altering substance. So usually it is herbs mixed with alcohol. The herbs themselves are not supremely potent, but when mixed by a professional witch in the right doses and the right combinations, it can create a very potent mix. And it's just essentially alcohol plus. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So fantasy being one of your favorite genres, and it's also your favorite genre to read, or do you have other genres that you're kind of drawn to more? I think fantasy is probably my favorite. I think it's something that I've always read as an undercurrent, even when I'm focusing on other things. I do read a lot of crime as well. I love Mm -hmm. crime. And there's a reason I write it as well. But in my crime, I am drawn to the same things I think I'm drawn to in my fantasy. I like quite dark books. um, Murder. (laughs) Murder. Murder. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) All of the murder. To be honest, the darker, the better, as long as it doesn't stray into territory that is violent for the sake of violence or anything like that you know dark themes I I find myself fascinated by them and I think what I like about crime is the same as what I like about fantasy and that you can explore people at their worst as well as at their best. So you have been writing for a long time. I think you started writing in NaNoWriMo 2004, 2005. Yeah, a long time ago. 15 years of experience. (laughs) And how would you say that that community has supported you as you've written your novels? And what advice do you have for aspiring authors who want to get into a career of writing or become published? Even though you say you never (laughs) wanted to do it. You're here now. (laughs) I did and I didn't. It's always been in, in, you know, in my deepest heart. And I think that when I look back to when I was still 14 or 15 and and writing my first books, the community that was part of the NaNoWriMo particularly, there was a local group that I used to go to in Nottingham. And we used to meet up every week during November and we would talk online all the time. And I think that that support when you are starting out and, and even when you're not, to be honest, The idea that someone actually cares what you're producing 
it can be really heartening, particularly if you're not very confident. So my advice genuinely for people getting started is to find other people who love books and who will talk about books till the cows come home mm-hmm. and particularly other writers who most writers are so supportive as well in my experience particularly mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time on Twitter probably more than I should <laughs> but I think people talk about Twitter being quite negative in times but the book community and the writing community can also be so supportive there are really great mentor programs and NaNoWriMo the community is still there every November and it's so nice to find other like-minded people who enjoy the same things that you do and and can offer tips and advice as well for free which is great. Talking about like the negativity of social media and and possibly even reviews I think do you read your own reviews for your books? (laughs) I shouldn't admit this. (laughs) how, How do you kind of navigate you know the positive reviews and the negative? I know a lot of writers don't read their reviews, but I do because I want to know what people think. And I won't necessarily agree with every review. And I think I go in with that knowledge in mind where I I have to take a step back and say, look, you know, the reviews aren't for me. They're for readers. But sometimes you can use them to pick up on common themes that people really enjoyed about your books and think, oh, yeah, you know, people love this. I'm going to try and include that again in a future book. Or here are some things that aren't working for people. And you can sit back and say, I wonder why that might be. Is it personal taste or is it something in my craft that I can improve for the future? So Mm -hmm. I, I definitely do read my reviews. But I also think some of that is from um, a creative writing degree and I did a creative writing MA. So I'm very used to that kind of collaborative feedback process. So reviews don't scare me, I think. And they, they they don't put a dampener on my spirit in the same way that I think maybe some people if they've not had that experience might find it more difficult to read them. Okay. So I feel like you've been busy to have had a book come out just last month and have this new one coming out this month. Do you often write different books simultaneously or like how long did it take to write Wild and Wicked Things? The interesting thing about having two books come out really close together was I actually didn't write them close together. I wrote The Lighthouse, which came out in February. I wrote that actually very recently. I wrote it back in November of 2020. So I was actually in lockdown. And that really did give me the time to actually take a break from, you know, I wasn't book selling in person. I had a month and I'd already started writing the book. So that one actually only took me about six weeks because I didn't do anything. I wasn't allowed to leave my house. (laughs) (laughs) So I just wrote the book. Um, And the turnaround time for publishing was quite quick on that one. Whereas Wild and Wicked Things, this took me a little bit longer because I was working. I think it took me about three months to write. I think I took a bit of a break in the middle as well because of you know my colleague passing. And it was a different experience. It felt very much like a humbling, I think. Mm. I sat down every day and apart from the break in the middle and, and just <laughs> yeah. kind of tried to see where it would go. There was no expectation. There was no kind of, oh, this is going to be my next book. It was just a project that was for me. Mm-hmm. So I, I was allowed to kind of let it meander a little bit and then pull it back and figure out what story I wanted to tell. So was that a conscious decision on your part to kind of delay the release of The Lighthouse just with the pandemic and not really being able to kind of probably promote it in the way that you wanted to? No, it, it actually ended up being just fortune, to be honest. My second book was delayed slightly because of the pandemic and it was delayed slightly before that, actually. And it ended up being quite a while between my first and my second book by the time wild and wicked things comes out i've had three books out within six months which (laughs) just feels wild to me i'm like oh my goodness i went from having one book out in 2019 by 2020 this will be my fourth yeah 2020 rather yeah it's been a long time coming i think but it's kind of just built up yeah over time 
when you're not writing, you're a bookseller. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> what are you currently reading? What books are you really trying to push to your customers right now? So I'm actually currently reading something completely outside of my normal wheelhouse. You know, as booksellers, we know that sometimes you, you read things that aren't really your cup of tea so that you can talk to customers about them. So I'm actually reading Rachel's Holiday by Marion Keyes at the moment. Okay. I don't read women's fiction very much, okay. but because it's such a sensation and because of the new book that she's written coming out sort of 25 years later as a sequel, that seemed to me like mm -hmm. a big deal. So yeah. I'm reading that and I'm really enjoying it. It's so different from what I normally read. But the books that I'm, I'm pushing at the moment, there's a couple that I'm really well there's probably about three or four that I'm really excited about okay one of my go-to recommendations is always for the wolf by Hannah Witten which I know you guys love we're um, yes we're big fans <laughs> of that one <laughs> I, I, love, I love Hannah's books we actually met while I think she was querying for the wolf and I was drafting wild and wicked things so I got to read a very early draft of that and I still love it so much and I'm really excited for the next one I'm currently selling Plain Bad Heroines a lot as oh, well. Yeah. I love that book. It's sort of very languorous and slow and creepy. And it's yeah. just, it ticks all of my boxes. Very sapphic as well. And I'm, Daughter of the Moon Goddess as well is the third one that yeah. definitely is on my radar because it's absolutely gorgeous. And it's a really nice story as well. I'm definitely picking up on a trend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kind of in the same vein. I feel like with the past two years, I think there's been a big increase in books trending and reading and what we're all talking about. But then at the same time, you know, what we're watching and what everyone's talking about. What have you watched recently? What have I watched recently? I, <laughs> I am, I'm really far behind on pretty much all of my watch lists. So I, I only just back in August managed to finally get around to watching Queen's Gambit, which was oh. amazing. <laughs> I was so mad that I waited so long to watch it. Yes, that was a good one. <laughs> yeah, it was so good. It's so good. I'm currently um, watching Ted Lasso, though, which is just phenomenal it's so good I love it yeah just the bright spot <laughs> you know it's it's funny the things I watch versus the things I read I do watch kind of dark spooky shows as well I really enjoyed Midnight Mass that was brilliant mm -hmm. but I tend to gravitate towards very cheerful films and I don't necessarily watch a lot of comedies but I do like yeah. things that have kind of the uplifting notes yeah <laughs> with my books and my my shows sometimes just light and airy to just kind of escape <laughs> Yeah, especially absolutely. now. Yeah. Sometimes you just need a break from yes. your life, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> Along the same vein, music. And when mm. we think of The Great Gatsby specifically, the 2013, I think. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I think that was the year. I'm like, oh, oh my God. Really far. <laughs> but I think it was 2013. <laughs> you know, that soundtrack was probably one of my favorite soundtracks. I just, I loved it so much. And I feel like Wild and Wicked Things lends itself to a soundtrack. Absolutely. Are there some songs <laughs> that you think fit the vibe of this book? Yes. So I think there are quite a few. I came up with a little playlist for mm. it. A few of the ones that kind of feature regularly are things like, my, I often have Florence and the Machine oh. on my playlist because her songs, particularly some of the, I would say the witchy ones, like, like Witch Witch, you know, those are very haunting. And there was a song yes. that she did for peculiar children the song that she did for that which yeah. you are here that one is a key song on the playlist yeah <laughs> and there is another one as well which I think of as Annie's song which is Sinners by Lauren Aquilina it's not one that a lot of people have heard of yeah. but I don't know why it, it just speaks to Annie in, in a way that I definitely feel in my bones <laughs> okay 
What projects are you currently working on? Do you have any plans maybe to step into another genre at some point? Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I think I might be taking on too much as it okay. is. But <laughs> I have two books lined up for next year. I will have uh-huh. another crime book, which is in the same kind of vein as The Lighthouse. So it's a gothic suspense, I would say. And then I do have another witchy book coming out with Orbit. I can't talk too much about that one, but Mm. I can say that it is small town. It's got very Stepford Wives vibes to it. It's got that kind of culty element where you have a character who comes in from the outside and everything seems far too perfect. And she has to sort of explore the reasons why that might be. But again, sapphic and witchy and a little bit gothic as well. Do you ever see yourself kind of doing like a series? I would love to write a series. Okay. I... I haven't written one for a while. I, I you know, as a teen, I, I was a big fan of trilogies. Particularly. Yeah. So I never say never, but a lot of my ideas recently have been standalone ideas. I think it's because it gives me the freedom to kind of play with different characters and different settings, mm-hmm. but definitely never say never because I would love, I've got a high fantasy trilogy that I loved writing as a teen that I would love to try and revamp someday, but I don't think I'm quite ready to do that yet. I don't think I've, I've, I've leveled up enough in my skills. <laughs> what were some of your favorite stories growing up? I loved so many. I mean, I grew up reading things like Tolkien, so Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. So I read a lot of classic fantasy, although, you know, they don't really have the representation in them that I'm looking for. I still do think of them quite fondly. Philip Pullman was another author. Um, Garth Nix's Sabriel series, I absolutely devoured those books. But particularly, I mean, there's authors like Libba Bray. She wrote a YA series set in the 1920s, which is kind of witchy and supernatural, which Mm -hmm. I really loved as well. So I had such diverse tastes within fantasy growing up, but definitely skewed towards the witchy. And like I said, the Kate Tin and Sweet books, I still have Mm -hmm. them on my shelf. For us on social media, we've recently been asking readers, what kind of romance tropes are your favorites? And I know (laughs) Wild and Wicked Things is not necessarily a romance story, but there definitely is the one bed element that (laughs) that makes... Oh, that's one of my favorites. I love that trope so much. And I just had to, and it's my own take on it, you know? Yes. It's not, I would say, a traditional only one bed, but there is only one bed. Yes. So would you say, is that your favorite kind of trope to include in your stories or is it just kind of your favorite to read? I think it's a bit of both. I I love it in all capacities. I love reading Enemies to Lovers as well. That's one of my all-time favorites to read. I I don't tend to write it as much. I do have a couple of ideas that have got Enemies to Lovers high tropes, but for some reason, I always seem to gravitate towards either this kind of first love vibe Mm. or childhood sweethearts to enemies to lovers or something like that some complication (laughs) yes yes I agree (laughs) I didn't want to bring it up and embarrass you anyway but houseplants I am a (laughs) I see some behind you that seems to be intact and I have heard and I have read that that's also something that while you're writing at night, you're also killing your plants. Oh, I struggle so much keeping plants alive. I try so hard. This one, you, you, you can't really see it, but it's a ZZ, a ZZ, whatever you call them. Mm-hmm. And it's on its last legs. It's not doing very yeah. well at all. Yeah, really, <laughs> you was, can't tell. Oh, I was told that they were easy and they are not. I have got a couple in the other room that I have managed to keep alive. I have a really nice hanging plant. But the other problem I have encountered since actually I 
I wrote that author bio is I have two new cats. I have two Maine Coons now. One of them, Atlas, is a big fan of chewing on plants that he shouldn't chew on. I think some of them may be destined for not living very long purely because he's going to do himself some damage (laughs) if he keeps eating them. (laughs) So Atlas and what's the other one's name? Atlas and Athena. I have far too many pets because I've also got two dogs. I lost one recently, unfortunately. Um, But we did have Zeus, Xena and Juno. We now got Zeus and Juno. And then I have another cat, Jet, who was part of an original pair, Shadow and Jet. (laughs) Okay, so what was kind of the inspiration behind those names? Jet is actually named after one of the aunts in Practical Magic. There are two aunts, Franny and Jet. So I decided to name her after after her. But I liked the fact that it was a play on the color black. Yeah. Black, and they're both black cats. So it was a nice pair, but also a nod to that kind of witchy inspiration. And obviously Zeus and Juno and Xena were mm-hmm. all mythology related. And we did the same thing with Atlas and Athena. And I'm really glad I called Atlas Atlas because my mum wasn't originally keen on the name. She was like, oh, I don't know how I feel about it. We should call him Gatsby. And I was like, maybe we should, <laughs> maybe. But also that feels a bit on the nose. Yeah. <laughs> um, we went with Atlas and he is the world's biggest himbo. You know, he is, he's this big black Maine Coon mm-hmm. and he is dumb as a sack of rocks. Like I love him, <laughs> but he is not smart. He went outside for the third time the other day and he got stuck in the neighbor's garden and I had to go around in my pajamas yeah. and fetch him from their garden. <laughs> I'm going to tie this back to Wild and Wicked Things because I feel like cats are the most common connection that we see to witches. But in Wild and Wicked Things, we are talking about crows and the connection to the crows and the legend saying that there's witches that have, they live in the bodies of these crows. If you had to choose one animal, what do you think that you connect the most with? If I had to choose any kind of of animal that might represent me, unfortunately, I think I'd be a golden retriever. (laughs) I I did not see that coming. (laughs) I I love them. They're great. We used to have golden retrievers, which I think is why I I do identify with them a little bit. But they're a bit dippy and very kind of excitable and just, ah, I'm great to be along for the ride. And that's like my whole vibe. What kind of dog do you have now? We have two Newfoundlands now, no, so the big huge. ones. Yes, huge. Well, is there anything else that you want readers to know about your newest book? If I could sum it up, I would say if you like your books to be dark or gothic or in any way bloody, then Wild and Wicked Things is for you. But it's not just about that kind of darkness. There is, I think, a real heart and a humanity in it with a healthy dose of magic. So I think it will appeal across the board, but to go in knowing that it's a book about horrible people. (laughs) This may have just been me picking up on it, but I have noticed that a good portion of the deaths were men. Yes. You, I think it was largely accidental because the book itself does not have that many male characters. It is actually very female heavy. One of those deaths, I won't say which one, is very upsetting. And it's one of those things where his gender and has nothing to do with it. He's a lovely character. And I feel like I wanted to keep things across the board, really, and have a good smattering of deaths. <laughs> <laughs> But I also wanted to sort of twist the Gatsby story on its head in some way. You know, I won't spoil anything in terms of that, but it's somewhat intentional. Let's put it that way. I think a lot of these characters, a lot of the female characters particularly, have been very affected by the men in their lives and by the patriarchy in general. Mm -hmm. So it's sometimes nice to see that 
reflected, I think, in the outcomes. But also the male characters in Wild and Wicked Things are, I like to think, as complex as the female characters. I think that they all have shades of grey and they all have some darkness in them and some lightness in them. And I don't think any of the deaths are justified (laughs) because the whole point about the book is that things spiral and very quickly get out of control. So (laughs) Definitely. I think thinking about, you know, the men coming back from the war, lending itself to the women being on their own and handling business on their own and not necessarily needing the men to take care of them. Yeah, and not only that, you know, the men who came back from the war came back changed, irreparably, Mm -hmm. irreversibly changed in some cases. And I think it would be unfair to say that every man that came back came back bad because of the experiences they had. But I'm sure a lot of them had a very extreme reaction to those circumstances because they didn't necessarily have the dialogue or the ability to communicate how they were feeling or the experiences that they'd had. I think in that way, the 1920s and the time period makes for a very complex setting because you have a lot of people who cannot talk about the experiences they've had or the traumas that they've had. And that leads to a lack of communication. And that there's that lack of open flow, which is why Emmeline's magic, I think, is so important to people because there is the faux magic on the island that they can use, that they are allowed to use by law. Mm-hmm. But all that is, is just unscrupulous mediums trying to pretend that they can connect them to the people that they've lost at the war. And it won't just be women using those services, you know, it'll be everybody using the services. And I think for a lot of the residents of Crow Island, Emmeline's ability to conduct real magic gives them hope that there is room to grow and there is the ability to overcome the trauma even if they can't necessarily verbalize it. It's very complex. I think gender plays a very complex role in the book itself as well. Definitely. Well, I love that. Francesca May, thank you so much for talking with me today. This was a great conversation and I hope that everyone runs out and gets wild and wicked things. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me. It's been great fun. I love to chat with other booksellers. It's brilliant. What's the word, book lovers? We're back for another TBR top-off, where we're going to recommend three titles for you to check out when you head in to pick up Francesca May's new novel, Wild and Wicked Things. You know we love to build that to-be-read pile. I'm Margie, speaking to you from my wonderful home store in Northville, Michigan, and today I am extraordinarily excited to introduce my new partner in crime from just a state away. Mark, take it away. Hey, this is Mark coming to you guys from Cincinnati, Ohio, Um, but I am a Michigander at heart. So Margie, we still have that connector. I am very stoked to be talking to you about books for all the Duda Day. And uh, let's go ahead and get started. Okay, awesome. And so I chose a title that kind of acts like a sinister dessert to the meal of Wild and Wicked Things. And it is The Diviners by Libba Bray. Uh, This book was recommended to me by a stellar brand new bookseller. Shout out to Maria at the Mason store in Ohio Mm -hmm. and tells the story of the character Evie O'Neill, who just moved to New York City during the 1920s era. And she is kind of a messy sort of person. She's brash. She should put her foot in her mouth, but certainly doesn't um, and has a hidden sort of magical talent 
to read objects. So the objects that she touches, she can glean information about the people who have used them. Basically, she carries everybody's secrets at all times, and it gets her in a lot of trouble. In fact, it gets her in enough trouble to embroil her in a serial murder mystery that has ties to the occult. This book serves up a lot of magic, spookiness, a really great sense of atmosphere for the era. And as the series goes on, I believe it's four books. The author also is able to tap into a lot of social issues that we deal with today, like racism and queerness that is all embroiled in a lovely magical package. And that is The Diviners by Libba Bray. That does indeed sound like a very tasty dessert. Mm-hmm. The one that I picked for this one is called Ring Shout by P. Jelly Clark. Mm, yes. Mm-hmm. I thought of this one because it's also a dark and magical tale set against the backdrop of actual history. Uh, Ring Shout won the Locus Award and the Nebula Award last year and was a finalist for six other awards, including the Hugo and the Her- Shirley Jackson Award. So not too shabby. Uh, In 1915, the movie The Birth of a Nation awakens the darkest thoughts of white folks and allows some to be seduced, but uh, and allows some to be seduced to the Klan, coming under the influence of a being both powerful and malicious. Maurice Boudreau and her compatriots use any means necessary, including bombs, bats, guns. Uh, to blast these nefarious minions back to hell. But there's something bigger and more terrible on the horizon. So can they stop the clan and its hellish master before the world ends? It is exciting and thought-provoking and one that you should really not miss. And again, that is called Ring Shout by P. Jelly Clark. I'm very excited for that one. You just bumped it up a couple notches. You gotta go for it. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. And the last one I chose is fairly fitting as well. It's not as magical, but it does hold some sort of personal magic for readers. Um, The book that I chose is the classic 1929 novel Passing by Nella Larson. I love this book so much. It's recently been adapted into a film on Netflix to much critical acclaim. Passing follows two light-skinned Black women, Irene and Claire, during 1920s New York. Uh, They are estranged childhood friends, and they run into each other as adults and find that their lives have taken drastically different paths. Irene lives comfortably in the growing Black community in 1920s Harlem, and Claire, on the other hand, has used her lighter skin to, quote-unquote, pass as a white woman and has gone so far as to have married a white man who is incredibly racist and completely ignorant of her heritage. Irene and Claire's lives and their feelings for each other become dangerously intertwined through the novel. This book is short. It's only 140 pages, but it packs so much into the slim volume. Um, It presents the mask of decadence and privilege through a lens that I think impacts all of us even now. Um, I really appreciate uh, a Stillwater's run deep economy of language writing style. And uh, Nella Larson just does this beautifully. And and that book is Passing by Nella Larson. That's such an important classic. Yes. So many books, you know, owe so much to books like that um, that are coming out nowadays. Vanishing Half, I'm Looking at You, one of the the best books I read last year. So good. 
Um, so wonderful. We, we have to stop before we run out of time. <laughs> so that will do it for this edition of TBR Top Off. There's some fabulous titles for you to pick up when you go for Wild and Wicked Things. Thank you for listening to Port Over. You can like and follow wherever you listen to podcasts and you can follow Barnes & Noble at Barnes & Noble. Easy peasy. My name is Margie. You can follow my home store at BN Northville and me at Margie Bookbrain. And I am Mark hailing from BN Westchester. That's my home store if you'd like to follow. Or you can pop into my Instagram at bookmark79. That's B-O-O-C-M-A-R-C. Did you see what I did there with the bookmark? That's pretty clever. Extremely clever. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, everybody. And take care. Happy reading. Happy reading. Board Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.